Have you ever tried really hard to lose weight, but you just couldn't seem to get any momentum? You don't have to raise your hands yet, okay, in just a moment. (laughs) Or have you ever struggled, and this gets a little more serious, but have you ever struggled with drinking too much and you just couldn't seem to set the can down or the bottle down? Or have you struggled with with addiction to porn? Or maybe it's an out-of-control anger that just seems to grip you. Now, I want to ask you, and I'm not kidding at this point, I want to ask you to raise your hand in just a moment if there's been one or more areas of your life where you've wanted to change, but you found it really difficult, if not impossible. Not necessarily one of the areas I've already mentioned, but how many of you would say, you know what, I have really tried to change in this area, that, but I found it so hard, if not impossible. Now, most of us should have our hands up. There's a few of you who are really great at everything, but most of us should have our hands up. Yeah, just a handful. Because changing is tough, isn't it? It's really tough to change. Well, this morning's passage is really important. It's really important because it deals with the nitty-gritty realities of life. It hits us where we live. It addresses real change and how that occurs in our lives. This morning, as we take a look at Colossians 3, 5 through 11, I hope that that you'll listen closely. Maybe maybe some of you will want to take some notes because this is a really important passage that talks about how we leave the old behind and how we begin to live a new life. In this text, Paul urges believers, live out who you are in Christ. Live out who who you are in Christ. And he gives three keys to living out our new identity in Christ. Now in verse five, you notice that it begins with the word therefore, and that connects what Paul is about to say with what Paul has just said. Now, if you look up into Colossians three, the the first few verses, you're gonna see that Paul is focused on encouraging the Colossians to think about and to dwell on heavenly things. to to think about the things of God, to desire the things of God. And now in verses 5 through 11, he's going to elaborate on that and help us understand what it means to to, to have a heavenly focus. If you look at verse 5, you see that Paul commands the Colossians to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to their earthly nature. Now, the verb for put to death in the Greek language, the Greek language, of course, is the language that the New Testament was originally written in. The Greek for this verb is a very strong word. It means to kill, to put an end to, to slay utterly. So he says, put to death your earthly nature. Christians should kill their earthly or their fleshly desires. Believers can't play around with sin and sinful desires. Instead, Christians are called to go to war against sinful desires. Now suppose that a rattlesnake is curled up and ready to strike. You aren't going to go, hey, what's up, rattlesnake? How close can I get to this fellow? You're going to go, and you're going to get the 12 gauge, aren't you? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna take care of that rattlesnake, and that's exactly what Paul is saying about sin and sinful desires. We don't go near sin and sinful desires and say, how close can I get? Hey, can I, can I play around with this thing? No, we recognize that sin is like a coiled up rattlesnake. It will kill us. It will harm us. And so we get the 12 gauge, Paul says, when it comes to sin and our sinful desires. And we seek to destroy those fleshly desires. It is like this. If you don't put sin to death, 
Friends, your sin will put you to death. You see, sin always, always brings death. It brings pain. It brings suffering. It brings heartache into our lives. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Those are pretty strong words. We understand that Jesus doesn't mean literally get a saw and start cutting your hand off. Or, or get some kind of an instrument and gouge your eye out. What he's saying is you can't play around with sin. You have to deal radically with sin. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us to maim our bodies, but he's telling us you can't make peace with sin and sinful desires. Paul isn't suggesting that we cut our bodies up either. That, that's not Paul's intent. But Paul is saying that we must kill the evil desires that take root in our bodies and that use our bodies to attack us. These sinful desires, Paul says, have to be destroyed. Now, Paul explains what he means by, by our earthly natures by listing five specific sins. First, he mentions sexual immorality, and the Greek word used here is porneia, and you can recognize what English word comes from that, pornography. This was a, a broad word used to refer to any kind of sexual intimacy outside the bounds of biblical marriage. Next, Paul references impurity. This word was used to refer to immorality of, of the same sort, but immorality that is especially dirty. It's used primarily in, in reference to, to sexual impurity in Scripture. And it's likely even a broader term than, than porneia, the one that we just talked about and includes impure thinking, impure words, impure actions. Next, Paul brings up lust. This word refers to having an uncontrolled desire. The word is used three times in the New Testament. Here in Colossians 3, 5, also you'll find that it's used in Romans 1, 26 to refer to homosexuality, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, in reference to impure sexual desires. Next, Paul mentions evil desire. This phrase is very similar to lust. It refers to illicit cravings or sinful longings. Then Paul mentions greed. And greed is an excessive desire to get more and more and more and more. In the Greek language, the word has an even broader meaning than, than in the English language. One author explained greed like this. It is the arrogant and ruthless assumption that all other persons and things exist for one's own benefit. So greed is a ruthless desire and a seeking after material gain and, and selfish gain, wanting more and more and more. Paul says that greed is idolatry. In other words, greed is making oneself or one's pursuit of material things into a God. To, to be greedy and to seek more and more and more is about worship of self. It's about worship of material things. Paul says greed is a manifestation of false worship. It is idolatry. Remember what Jesus said about the rich in Matthew 19, 24. I, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It isn't that having money is sinful. 
There were many wealthy saints in Scripture that that honored God and, and used their money in a way that honored God. It's just that many who have money could more accurately be described as being had by money. In other words, money is their God. It's the God they bow down to. Their selfishness and their greed make this apparent. And we've got to ask ourselves, is this happening in my heart? It's a question that I need to wrestle with. You don't have to have a lot of money to fall prey to the sin of greed. Is this a sin that, that, that's in my heart? Is this going on inside of me? So to give in to the sexual appetites of the body and the greedy desire for more and more are unacceptable for one who is in Christ. And Colossians 3.3, Paul reminded the Colossians that they had died with Christ. Here in verse 5, he reminds them that they must live this truth out. In Romans 6.11, Paul said, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, realize that you have died to sin. When you came to Christ, the old nature, who you were before, that nature is dead. Don't keep living how you used to live. Don't keep living according to your old nature. That's what Paul is is saying to, to these believers. Then Paul gives the Colossians two reasons that they should put sin to death. First, he says, because God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Here, Paul reminds the Colossians that judgment is coming. And if a person claims to be a believer, but continues to live in sin and remain in sin year after year after year, that person should fear judgment. That's what Paul's saying. A person who has been saved longs to honor Christ. In other words, a genuine Christian can't continue to live as a lost person indefinitely. There may be times of rebellion in a Christian's life. There may be times of of spiritual struggles. There will be times of spiritual struggles as believers. But ultimately, a person who genuinely knows Christ is going to be shaped by that reality. And so Paul reminds these Colossians, judgment will come. Consider the way that you're living, Paul says. Paul gives a second reason, reason for putting sin to death. Indulging their sinful flesh, Paul said, is how they used to live. In other words, you don't want to keep living the way you used to live before you knew Jesus. You don't want to do that. Now, if you notice, both of the verbs in, in, in verse 7 are past tense. You once walked and when you were living. So living according to the sinful flesh has no place in the present life of the believer. This should be what happened in the past before we knew Christ. Once a person is saved and made right with Christ, that person's way of life should begin to change. And so Paul reminds the Colossians they have no business living like a lost person. So how do believers live out their identity in Christ according to verses 5 through 7? First, put to death your sinful desires. Put to death your sinful desires. Suppose you had gangrene on the big toe of your left foot. You had gone to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, we've got we've to get after this. We've got we've to treat this serious. This could become come deadly. And you say to yourself, look, it's just a little spot. It's not really a big deal. I'll, I'll, I'll just let it go for a while. I'll, I don't want to go through all the rigmarole that that doctor's saying. Now, if you said that, you'd be crazy. Why? Because gangrene doesn't remain small. It expands in terms of its territory. It's going to spread. It's going to grow. It's going to get bigger. We recognize that. But sin is exactly the same way. 
Sin never stays small. We think it's small. We, we like to pretend that it's small. We like to say, well, my sins are little. They're not that big of a deal. But the problem is, friends, sins grow. They grow in our lives. The more space we give them, the more we nourish them, the more we kind of play around with them, they grow, they, they get bigger, they begin to spread. There's no safe amount. We think we can get a hold on just a little sin, but in reality, a little bit of sin eventually gets a hold on us. So how do we think about this in terms of our everyday lives? Well, let's think through the answers to these questions. First, are you striving to kill out sinful desires and habits? Are you striving to, to kill out sinful desires and habits? Your attitude towards sin, all sin must be to say, I am going to war against this. You must say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this filthy stuff out of my life. So are you striving by God's grace to kill the sin that's in your life? Or are you just trying to manage your sin? so that you can keep it under control and still kind of enjoy the things that, that are, you know, not okay, but not that bad to you? Are you trying to manage your sin or are you trying to kill your sin? So ask the Lord to give you new desires, new longings to love Him, to hate sin, longings to know Him more deeply, to love Him more fully and to live a life that, that conforms to Him to your new identity. Ask him for that desire. Ask him to change your desire so that you don't want sin, but, but you want, you want to, to honor him. Are you living out your new identity in Christ? Next, are you becoming more sexually pure? Every believer who is of age has, has struggled in one way or another with, with purity. But the question is, are you, as a follower of Christ, living out your identity in this critical area? According to God's word, sexual intimacy should occur only between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Intimacy outside of biblical marriage is wrong. Scripture makes that clear. Lustful thinking is wrong. It's sinful. Pornography is sinful. Homosexual behavior is sinful. Living together, cohabiting as a couple is outside of God's plan. And the list could go on and on. So the question is, are you becoming more and more like Jesus in this area of your life? Or are you increasingly giving in to, to your sinful desires? Regarding this issue, our society argues that Christianity is oppressive, that Christianity is limiting. But in reality, God's word regarding purity is like jumping on a life raft in the middle of an ocean that's raging. This life raft keeps you from drowning and keeps you from becoming a meal for a hungry shark and any other number of predators that are out at sea. You see, when you follow God's word in this crucial area, you are protected from the brokenness that the hookup culture and this sexually confused culture that we live in leads to. You're protected from the emptiness and disgust that pornography brings, from the disease, diseases that, that are out there. You're protected from the difficulties that come when children are born outside of, of the stability of marriage. And we could, we could list all kinds of ways that when we follow God's word, it's like a life raft that protects us. Now, so what society calls limiting and oppressive in reality is life-giving. It's God's tender love and protection for people. 
Our culture demands that nearly every sexual behavior be sanctioned and celebrated, but it's confused and angry when sexuality goes outside of the few boundaries that still exist. Think about the Me Too movement. You see, a biblical sexual ethic protects It brings boundaries to an area of our lives that can easily, easily spiral completely out of control. Yes, God's commands in this regard are our safeguard. They are his love for us to protect us from the torment that sexual sin can bring into our lives. I want to share with you John Piper's strategy for purity. And Piper's a retired pastor and he he uses the word anthem and this might be a good one to jot down. The A stands for avoid. As much as possible, avoid any situation that leads to sinful desires. Avoid. If you can stay out of a situation where you know you're going to be tempted, do that. Do what it takes to avoid situations that will lead to temptation as much as possible. The N stands for no. Say no within seconds. If you linger over a sinful thought before long, you're going you're gonna to be taking that path. So say no within seconds. Immediately say, hey, I can't think this. The T is turn your thinking to something wonderful. And the example is like Christ crucified. Like Christ crucified. In other words, when, when this temptation comes into your mind and you're thinking something that's inappropriate or impure, turn your focus to the Lord Jesus on the cross. Think of him there nailed to that cross in agony. Think of the blood flowing from his wounds. Get your thoughts on that. And the H stands for hold the pure thing in mind until the temptation is gone. Hold the pure thing in mind until the temptation is gone. The E stands for enjoy. Enjoy the greater pleasure of the blood-bought promises of God than the fleeting, the fleeting pleasures of sin because God's promises and God's gift of life is infinitely better than any pleasure that a fleeting sin can bring. So enjoy the greater pleasure. The M stands for move on to meaningful Christ-exalting activity. Get on with what you need to take care of that's right and good. If you'd like to read more about this, you can go to desiringgod.com and in the search bar type anthem desiringgod.com in the search bar type anthem, and you'll see more about what Piper has written in this regard. So next, are you growing in generosity? God's people are not to make money a God. Becoming greedy for more and more, being stingy and holding on to all you can isn't the way that a believer lives. This kind of greed may characterize a lost man, but it should not characterize a person who's been saved Instead, we ought to be generous with others. So ask yourself, am I stingy or am I, and greedy? Has money become the hidden God of your heart? Or do, or do I want to give? Do I want to be a blessing to others? So we've seen to live out who you are in Christ, you must put to death your sinful desires. How else does Paul encourage believers to live out their new identity in Christ? Let's look in verse 8. Paul urges the Colossians to put away sins that relate to attitudes and behavior. The verb that is used, put away, can be pictured as removing filthy clothing. Paul says, take these dirty clothes off. Don't let these things be a part of your life. And then he lists several sins. First, 
Paul told the Colossians to put away anger. Second, he lists wrath. It isn't English, easy to distinguish what Paul means between these two words. It could be that the first word, anger, likely indicates an ongoing, just lasting, burning anger. And perhaps the second word, wrath, may suggest an outburst of fury. But the believer shouldn't be given to, to this kind of anger and this kind of wrath, but, but rather should be patient with others. Third, Paul urges the Colossians to put away malice. Now, that's not a word that we use a lot, but the word means to be mean-spirited or have a, a vicious attitude towards someone. To show malice towards someone is to want to harm them. Again, this kind of attitude isn't the mark of a believer. Fourth, Paul says, put away slander. And the Greek word that is used here is blasphemia, which you recognize sounds like the English word blasphemy. The idea is that believers should not speak poorly of God and they should not try to harm the reputation of others. Fifth, Paul says to put away filthy language. He's referring to obscene and dirty talk. In this context, he may be also focusing on speech that degrades others. So filthy and abusive talk, those are out of place for people who claim to know the Lord Jesus. So we've seen that Paul first urged believers to put to death their sinful desires. In verse 8, the second key that he gives to living out our identity in Christ is put away your sinful attitudes and behaviors. Put away your sinful attitudes and behaviors. Now, if you saw a Ford truck and this Ford truck was marked with Ram branding, you would say to yourself, something isn't right here. It has a Ram insignia on it, but it's a Ford truck. Similarly, Paul is saying for a believer's life to be marked by these things, wrath and slander and malice and filthy language, it makes no sense. It, it doesn't add up. When a Christian is living this way, He's living contrary to who he is in Christ. He's marked by the insignia of a lost person. He's got the branding of a lost person, not the marks of a believer. So how do we live out this idea? Well, ask yourself these questions. First, when it comes to your attitudes and behaviors, are you living out your identity in Christ? When it comes to your attitudes and your behaviors, do you seek to have attitudes that please God, that reveal whose you are? Well, we get a picture of these in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, when God's at work in our lives, the, the result of that is that we are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So are those attitudes growing in your life? Are you, are you becoming more joyful? Are you becoming more patient? Are you more gentle? Are you more kind with people? Are these things growing in your life? Next, are you handling your anger in a way that honors Christ? Ephesians 4.26 says this, be angry and do not sin. What that means is that all sin isn't necessarily sinful. In Mark 3.5, we see that Jesus experienced righteous anger. Anger becomes sinful when it is motivated by our own selfishness or when it's expressed in sinful ways. Do you become angry when you don't get your way? When you're mad, do you lash out and throw your wrath around at others? Or do you clam up and become cool and cruel? Both expressions of anger are sinful. The, the lashing out and the, the cold shoulder, all of that. So examine your angry feelings to be careful that you aren't responding out of selfishness, that you aren't responding in a way that, that is sinful. Submit your anger to the Lord and ask Him, God, is, is this, am I handling this in the right way? Is this motivated just by my own selfishness? 
Because Paul says, if your anger is running the show, you're living like the old person. You're not living like the new person any longer. Next, do your words reveal your Christian identity? Do you always have something bad to say about others? Do you happily pass on the worst about others with little concern about whether or not the information is true or false? Do you love to talk negatively about others, spreading your information to, to anyone who will listen? Now social media has drastically enlarged the opportunity to pass on slander and to defame others. Yet this is not the way a believer should live. Filthy talk and coarse joking also have no place in the lives of believers. When Christians speak, our love for Christ should be apparent. Do you gladly laugh at and tell coarse jokes, filthy filthy jokes? Is your speech filled with profanity and cursing? Do you have a Sunday morning vocabulary and then the rest of the week vocabulary? Would that describe you? Well, consider what Paul says in Ephesians 4.29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So is your speech uplifting others? Do you seek to benefit and bless others with the words that you use? Or do your words sound more like the words of a person who doesn't know Christ? We've seen that Paul first urges the believers to put to death their sinful desires. Second, he urged them to put away their sinful attitudes and behaviors. How else do believers live out their identity in Christ? Let's look in verse 9. Paul says plainly, do not lie. Do not lie to one another. As a Christian, we must be a people of the truth, a people who, who keep our word. A Christian is meant to live a life of honesty and integrity. So Paul emphasizes the importance of telling the truth. The third way we live out our identity in Christ is this, do not lie. Do not lie. Your word, if you know the Lord Jesus, should be reliable. A person ought to be able to take your word to the bank. You should be a person of complete integrity. When we fail in this regard, then we ought to We ought to try to make it right. We ought to tell the truth. We ought to strive to walk in an upright manner. If you're not married, for a moment, I want you to imagine that you are. Next, that could be scary or delightful, I suppose. Next, imagine, this is where it gets scary. Imagine that your spouse lies to you all the time. You never know if she's telling the truth. You never know if he's being straight with you. Hopefully no one's getting elbowed in the side right now. But imagine what that would look like. How frustrating and ultimately devastating that would be for a marriage. If one spouse couldn't trust the other spouse. Now I want you to think for a moment about your own speech. Think about your words. Are lies mixed in? Do you just casually if it works for you, if it's kind of convenient, do you just casually kind of just tell a lie? Or are you committed to the truth? When we think in this context of marriage, we see how devastating ultimately lies would be and how much we would hate them. But we need to recognize that God is a God of truth. He hates the lies that we tell. He hates the dishonesty in our lives. So how do we live this out? Well, ask yourself these questions. When it comes to integrity, are you living out your identity in Christ? When it comes to integrity, can people count on you? Can people know 
that when you say something, it's true. In business dealings, can people be certain that you aren't trying to cheat them? When it comes to taxes, do you do what is right? Do you tell the truth or do you play games with the truth? Do you convince yourself that a little lying's okay? In John 8, we are told that Satan is the father of lies. So when you lie, when I lie, we're living out our old identity. We're not living out our new one. By God's grace, are you becoming a person of greater integrity? A person whose words are true. So we've seen three keys for living out our identity in Christ. Now Paul gives three reasons for living out who you are in Christ. Now Paul connects these reasons directly to this command not to lie, but they become the foundation for all that Paul is saying in this passage. First, you have put off the old self. Paul says, remember, you've put off the old self. What Paul means is that they had put off who they were before they trusted Christ. That old person is dead. They're no longer that person. Second, in verse 10, Paul reminds these Colossians that they hadn't only taken off the old self, they had put on the new self. And he means that when these believers turned from sin and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, they had a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it like this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What wonderful news. So Paul says, since Christ has given you a new identity, live that out. Live that out. Make it real in your life. And then Paul gives a third reason, verses 10 and 11, for living out their new identity as believers. Paul says, you are being renewed as a part of God's people. You're being renewed as a part of God's people. You see, the Colossians were being renewed in in knowledge according to the image of their creator. Paul meant that God was renewing their minds, conforming their way of thinking, making their thinking consistent with his ways. Now in verse 11, Paul reminds these believers of the beautiful unity that occurs with our new identity. If a person knows Christ, this new identity erases all of the things that, that typically divide people. And Paul gives examples. First, he gives the example of the Jews and the Greeks. By Greeks, probably he's referring to people who were non-Jews, but to, often called Gentiles. In other words, ethnicity and race should not divide the people of God. Then Paul mentions the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Here, Paul argues that those who followed Jewish law and who were circumcised were on no different standing than those who didn't follow Jewish law. In other words, these ceremonial Jewish laws could not and should not divide the people of God. Then Paul mentions the barbarian and the Scythian. The barbarian meant a foreigner or someone who couldn't speak the language of the land. The Scythians were not just barbarians, but they were considered absolutely uncivilized. In other words, cultural differences shouldn't divide the people of God. And then Paul mentions slave and free. Paul says the social barrier between the slave and the free shouldn't divide the people of God. And then Paul concludes in verse 11 by reminding the Colossians that Christ is all and in all. What Paul meant is this, all of life, every bit of life is about Jesus. It's about him. In Christ, these earthly distinctions that that divide and separate, they fade away. They become meaningless. Loyalty to the Lord Jesus is greater than all of these. So unity should characterize the people of God, those people who have a new identity. Now let's think about applying the truths that we thought about this morning into our lives. How do you achieve real and lasting change? Now here's some homework for you. 
If you take notes, now would be a great time to jot some things down. Number one, read and study Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, as well as this passage. Read and study Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, as well as this passage. Number two, recognize who you are in Christ. Recognize who you are in Christ. He has made you new. He has made you new. Number three, remember that God has given you his Holy Spirit to help you change. You're not on your own. He has given you his Holy Spirit. If you want to change God, if you know Christ, God lives inside of you. He will empower you and help you. Number four, biblical change involves putting off and putting on. Number four, biblical change involves putting off and putting on. Putting off the old ways. What that means is we strive to avoid anything that would, that would lead us to live the way a lost person lives. We strive to get rid of the things that are sinful. We avoid situations that would lead us down that path. We do whatever it takes to put off the old. And then we strive to put on the new. We strive to nurture our faith and, and to live out the new identity that God has given us. What, what kinds of things will nurture our faith? Well, reading the Word daily, memorizing the Word, spending time in prayer, being in church, building connections and relationships with other believers who can encourage us, pray for us, and spur us on. Maybe finding a mature believer of the same gender who can, who can give us some accountability and, and who can pray with us about challenges in our life. These are ways to put on the new identity, to live out the new identity. So put off means you seek to break sinful habits. To put on means you seek to replace these habits with godly ones. Now, let me give you some examples. Consider lying. Don't just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to stop lying. Instead, be a person who is committed to the truth in all areas of life. Don't just say, uh, in regards to greed, I'm going to stop being greedy, but instead decide I'm going to be generous. When it comes to purity, don't just say, I'm going to quit looking at porn. Instead, say, you know what? I'm going to focus on my mind being renewed. I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm going to study the Word of God, and I'm going to begin to see women as an image bearer of God. I'm going to let His Word transform the way that I think. So put off the old and put on the new. Put off the old habit, put on the new habit. Don't just say, I'm going to stop doing this, but ask, what can I, what can I put on? What can I add to help me? Number five. Think about your own struggles and develop a strategy. Think about your own struggles and develop a strategy. What sinful habit do you need to put off? And what godly habit do you need to put on? Number five, what's a strategy? What do you need to put off? What do you need to put on? Now, in your notes at the bottom, you're going to find verses that are going to help you with particular areas that today's passage addressed. Read these verses. Memorize some of them. Use them to guide your prayers. And, and allow the, the Lord to shape your thinking through the Word. The Word will help you put off the old and put on the new. One of the, those sections is, is listed new identity. Study those verses. Those are good verses to consider. And number six, go to war against the flesh and do not give up. Go to war against the flesh and do not give up. Change is almost always a process. Every now and then the Lord will just miraculously set someone free from, from, from a, an addiction or something. And those are glorious times, but often breaking free from those kinds of things is a process. It's a process of change. We, we make a step and then we take a couple steps back. But in Christ, we can take steps forward even, even when we fall. You've got to keep fighting 
You've got to keep moving forward. You've got to strive by God's grace to live out your new identity. What God says is true about you, you've got to strive to live out by faith and by his grace. And this is the deal. As you put off the old and you put on the new, slowly, friends, you'll begin to become more like Jesus. It may be imperceptible at first, but eventually this is what will happen. The old person that you were won't even be recognizable. Who you used to be eventually won't even be recognizable. And people will be able to say, huh, I don't know about that Christianity stuff, but it sure made a difference in his life. And it sure changed her. She's a different lady than I used to know. Man, he is a different fellow than the guy I, I grew up with. Oh, that's what God does. He changes us. He remakes us. So put off the old and, and put on the new. Yes, live out your new identity in Christ. Suppose that we saw some news footage of an official dinner of the, the elite, the big dogs in Washington, D.C. The president was there along with the first lady. Both the president and the first lady were dressed in their finest, elegant and fashionable. On the other hand, suppose the president's children were there, but dressed in tattered and dirty clothes. Suppose they looked as if they had been homeless for months, filthy and unkempt. And they showed up at this official dinner looking like that. Everybody would be outraged. They would be offended. How could the, the children of the president of the United States dress like that? They have no shortage of resources. After all, their, their fathers, the president of the, of the United States and the most powerful man alive and, on, and even beyond that, a billionaire. How could his children embarrass him and our country by dressing like that? And yet, friends, this is our story. We are the children, not of the president, but we're the children of the king of kings. And yet we go around living in our tattered, sinful clothes, living like a lost person, even though we know the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. We're his child with all the resources of the spirit living and dwelling within us. What this means is we don't have to live the way we used to live. We don't have to wear those old sinful, tattered clothes. We don't have to look like homeless beggars when it comes to our sin. We can be changed and we can become clothed with the beauty of a Christ-like life. Walking out and living out our new identity. So brothers and sisters, we do not live in the tattered rags of sinfulness if we know the Lord Jesus. This is wonderfully good news. If you belong to Jesus, you can change. You can put off the old self. You can put on the new self. You can live out your new identity. God has given you the Holy Spirit to help you. He's given you his word to help you. He's given you fellow believers to help you. He has given us all we need to change. The beautiful clothes of our new identity are available to us today. Will you put off the old self? And will you strive by God's grace to live out your new identity? If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus you can turn to him in faith today. Friend, he can give you a brand new identity. And, and turning to him in faith will mean that he picks you up and lifts you up and that you'll be in his hands and he'll never, ever let you go. It means that one day you can, you can live with him forever in heaven. Even if you fumble the ball, he won't let you go. How amazing is that? To have a brand new identity, to have a fresh start, 
today you could come to Christ. How do you do that? You say to him, you know what, God, I know that I'm guilty. I'm sinful. I I believe that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried. He was raised to life. And I'm putting my faith in him. I'm putting my trust in him. Lord, forgive me for all that. I want to follow you. And when you when you call out to God like that and you mean it, God saves you and never, ever lets you go. You have a new identity and it's an eternal identity. Join me in prayer.